You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 98. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Clark. You have reached another Local Maximum. As we close out the year, as we close out 2019, the responses to the last few episodes have been tremendous. I know I've been told I can't use tremendous anymore because the president uses it, but that's okay. Ugh, he uses that phrase too. He uses that's okay. But by the way, I saw the latest Star Wars last night. Is this something that you want me to discuss on the show, localmaxradio gmail.com, to answer that question? No spoilers, of course. I'm still open-ended on how I rate it, but uh, I have to think about whether it'll be memorable or not, you know, in the years to come. But it, it was a lot of fun. That was uh, episode nine, The Rise of Skywalker. So been up pretty late with that, with holiday parties, all that good stuff. Anyway, look, uh, we've had record numbers of listeners to these episodes, and I think next week in episode 99, I'll share some of the uh, your comments on the climate protesters, on Pascal's wager, and also on the computer science topics we discussed. Today's topic, I think, brings it together a little bit, which is great, because we're going to be talking about Bayesian inference again, but also about elections, about forecasting, and and social choice theory, uh, you know, uh, strategic voting and elections. And we start to get into all these electoral systems around the world, uh, the mistakes that journalists and pollsters make around the world. And uh, so if whether you're a coder or uh, you like the kind of the news political junkie angle, I, I think this episode is going to make you happy. Today's episode is sponsored by Manning Publishing. Go to manning.com and use discount code podlocalmax19 to get 40% off all their books, which are of particular interest to the software engineers and data scientists in the audience. So without further delay, today's guest called me remotely all the way from France. He is the host of the new podcast, Learning Bayesian Statistics, and he runs the political forecasting site, pollsposition.com, where he uses Bayesian inference and logical thinking in general to analyze political trends and make predictions all over the world. Alex Andara, welcome to the show. You have reached the local maximum. <laughs> Thank you, Max. I'm, I'm really glad to, to be in your show. I'm uh, one of your uh, listeners every week, so it's an honor to be here. Oh, well, I'm so glad to hear that. It's very rare that uh, I get to have a, a listener on the show. Well, actually, I don't know. I think I've had a few listeners in the past, um, but uh, I'd have to go <laughs> I'd have to go count that. But no, <laughs> thank you so much for listening to the show. It really does mean a lot to me. And um, it's, I mean, you know this too, like when you start your podcast and you started learning Bayesian statistics, I'm really glad you started it. Isn't it so cool when you see people who like actually are interested in the same things that you're interested in? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. No, and yeah. I mean, uh, congrats on, on your uh, podcast. I, I listen to it because uh, it's great. <laughs> well, thanks. Uh, uh, can you tell us a little bit about you know what you plan to uh, cover on Learning Bayesian Statistics podcast? Uh, maybe uh, you're what, four, four or five episodes in? Uh, yeah, exactly. I just released uh, the, the fourth episode uh, this, uh, this past week. Um, I'm really excited about this one. I had a lot of fun recording it. It's uh, with a researcher called Karin Knudsen. And we're talking about uh, Dirichlet processes and how, oh, she, yeah. how she uses uh, them in, uh, to study neurodegenerative uh, diseases. At uh, at Mass General Hospital in Boston, so it's uh, yeah 
it's it's really cool because she she explains uh jury club processes on the show and it's it's a hard topic so and she does oh my god through audio now i know exactly exactly you might not know this i actually have a video on or several videos and and a paper on the dirish light distribution oh um, yeah yeah online and Mm. so this is (laughs) i know personally firsthand how how uh i mean how cool it is once you wrap your head around it, what's really going on. Yeah. Um, the whole conjugate prior thing is, is awesome, yeah, yeah. but uh, it's, uh, it's and, and then, you know, describing it in audio, trying to bring it to life through words is, uh, is an exciting challenge. Um, I'm glad you guys are taking it on. So tell me a little bit about, you know, what you've done with the podcast so far, uh, where you plan to go with it and uh, why you started it. Yeah. Um, well, as you said, my show is called... Uh... Uh, learning Bayesian statistics. It's it's not a very original name, but uh, at least it's descriptive. But people will find it exactly. Uh, <laughs> and um, yeah, so as the name says, it's a it's a podcast uh, dedicated to Bayesian inference. Uh, the idea is to give people a, an endpoint to stay up to date or simply to understand <laughs> what Bayesian inference is and. Actually, I had the idea because when I started learning Bayesian methods about uh, three years ago, I really wished there were podcasts out there that could introduce me to the methods and the projects and the people who make all that possible. And I mean, I there were amazing online resources and books, and I work a lot with Python and a package uh, called PyMC3. Yeah, which is awesome. <laughs> and the community here is really incredibly welcoming and, and the core devs of PyMC uh, in particular. But uh, I don't know about you, but I'm a voracious uh, podcast listener. I love audio content. And what I love about them is that um, I find that more efficient than several days of Google search. You know, uh, sure. often I'm I- like, Oh, wait. Oh, yeah. I remember on this show in this episode, uh, that guy talked about that project that could be useful in my case uh, right now. So I go to the website. Yeah. Yeah, in podcasting, it's like you get one person's perspective and they take you through step by step. Yeah. It's more like the, that's the benefit of reading a book, too, where it's like, yeah. you know, you, you, uh, you know, you have, you have a single perspective and they kind of build up build you up from the foundations, whereas Google searches, you have people coming in all over the place. You know, you have blog posts that are hastily put together. Some things, some information is good, some information is bad, uh, you know, and you just don't know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so that's why I, I wanted, you know, stuff like a, a show like that where people could do the same thing uh, that I do on other podcasts. Uh, they go to the show notes and then they click on on the link or uh, of the guest or of uh, her project and bam they have uh, the information they wanted plus it gives you as you said uh, sometimes you listen to an episode about a topic you didn't know anything about and in it opens uh, some perspective for you so yeah it's basically the idea of the podcast and so I I interview researchers and practitioners uh, of all fields. I'm really uh, I'm kind of curious. Uh, uh, so I I like to discover new topics. So I interview uh, people of all fields about why and how they use patient statistics, uh, how they came to the methods and what their projects and especially what their challenges are. 
because you do a statistical modeling yourself, you know that it can sometimes feel very lonely. So I wanted to, uh, yeah, especially if you know some a lot of people out there probably the only ones at their company who who do it or yeah. part of a very small team. And uh, yeah, also like you know when you build up this kind of expertise on on these statistical methods. Um, you know, a lot of times, well, I could say, well, yes, I do this on location data and on mm -hmm. marketing data, yeah. and that's great. But I feel like maybe by learning your show, I can learn about how these methods can be applied to all sorts of different areas in science and technology and research that I wouldn't even know about otherwise. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, typically, it's it's really whether you want to learn Bayesian statistics or hear about the latest libraries, books, and awesome application. Uh, well, I, I thought this podcast exactly for that. And yeah, the, the, as you said, uh, well, typically the, the fourth episode with uh, Karin Knudsen, I, I really didn't know anything about neurodegenerative diseases. Uh, uh, yeah, it, no, it, I don't it, either. Yeah, it, it was really, really interesting. And she does uh, an amazing work. And as far as uh, what topics uh, I want to cover on the podcast, uh, in the coming weeks, um, I have some exciting uh, uh, episodes on the deck. Uh, I have one for uh, in two weeks. Uh, it will be how to use base in biomedicine uh, with Eric Ma, who is a, a core dev of PyMC and also uh, does data science at Novartis. So it's uh, it's really interesting to to hear from his perspective because Novartis is also a large organization. So it's also the question of uh, well, how do you get your coworkers more used to posterior distributions than p-values uh, yeah. schematically? You know, so it's yeah, uh, that's uh, spreading the good, spreading the good word, <laughs> spreading the gospel. I like that. Yeah, yeah, uh, uh, yeah exactly. Plus, uh, yeah, also it's it's kind of diverse. Um, I, I had the chance to interview the other day uh, Michael Bittencourt, uh, who is uh, one of the Stan core developer this time. Uh, Stan is a kind of the, the seminal probabilistic programming language. Um, and he talked about uh, principled Bayesian workflow. It's, uh, it's his uh, thing right now. And it's really the idea that um, sometimes you feel lost when you build a model and you ask yourself why what you're trying to do is so damn hard. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and often you conclude that you are the problem and that you must be something doing something wrong. <laughs> yeah, that's... Uh, uh, yeah, well, exactly. A lot of people feel that way. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> we and all feel so, that way sometimes. Yeah. And Michael, Michael is really someone very... Uh, he's... Um, like, uh, take a step back, take a few breaths. Take yeah, a step exactly. Back. Plus, he's really bright and you'll hear it on the podcast saying that, well, yeah, it's hard for me too. It's the point and it's that it's hard for everybody. So just uh, come down and remember that uh, if you don't fail, you don't learn. So I, I find that this episode very inspiring. I hope uh, the listeners will too. <laughs> well, yeah, no, I think that uh, I would get a lot of value out of that uh, discussion and, and the other ones you mentioned. So I'm definitely going to subscribe uh, to learning Bayesian statistics and uh, yeah, maybe I'll make it a part of my my uh you know my routine um I so. <laughs> so i wanted to ask you you know uh bayesian inference is used by uh, many technical researchers and forecasters but mm. um what would you like the average person to know about bayesian inference yeah yeah that's uh, that's a hard one uh because well actually um 
one of the nice things about Bayesian inference is I think it's easier to explain than to practice. <laughs> because yeah. when you practice... Except when it, someone already has it in their mind that uh, statistics means this and that this is um, yeah, yeah. going to be very complicated, then it can get more difficult. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's true. But um, as you said, the average person, I guess that uh, they don't know that much about... Uh, specific statistics i mean even like p-values uh, i really don't think it's it's really well known uh, right. by the average person in france um i don't know in the u.s but i guess it's the same thing yeah uh, so how, how would you like explain it to them like um, yeah what you're what you're well, trying to do the kind of the, the essence of it yeah yeah usually i just um stick to like the philosophical definition i'd say and how it is very close to how our brain makes sense of the world like uh, intuitively. I mean, generally, when you think about some subject, you have some prior knowledge about it. You can call that the state of the world, if you want. And right. then you have new data that arrive, and then you process that data, and, well, then you update your knowledge about the state of the world. And... Often the question is, how do you process these new data? How do you incorporate them in, in how you make sense of the world? That's actually quite tricky because we do that instinctively, but uh, that's the step where a lot of cognitive biases take place. You know, Right. We, we do it instinctively, but we don't always do it well. Exactly. And uh, that's where all these biases come into play. And what I often say is that, well, if you're serious about getting to the truth, I mean, not being right, but really knowing knowing whether something you're believing is true or not, then Bayesian inference and Bayes rule is the most logical way to update your belief. I don't, mm, I don't yeah. mean that it will give you the right answer. I'm not saying that. I mean that it's the most logical way to update what you believed before you saw the new data yet that you just saw. Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, so I definitely want to get into your work on election forecasting. Um, I don't have this written here, but I actually kind of want to know what, how you got into uh, <laughs> election and, and political forecasting. Um, yeah, I cover uh, elections and politics sometimes here in the local maximum. Yeah, and um, it's uh, I guarantee you we're going to cover it a lot more over the next year. <laughs> yeah, given I bet. that uh, it's the election year, presidential election year in the U.S. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, how did you get into it, and uh, you know what aspects of the electoral process and polling are you kind of do you focus in? Yeah, well, I I remember very well how I got into it. Uh, I was writing a book actually about the US in summer 2016. So it was, of course, already the presidential election uh, in the US. Right. So I was following that very closely. And I came across this uh, small website, I don't know if you know it, that's called uh, 538. Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's not very small right now. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I was thinking that's what you were going to say. I'm like, nah, he said small. He's going to say something else. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, <laughs> no. I, I still might know it because I know some of the small ones. Yeah, yeah. No, and I came across uh, 538A. I was like blown away by that stuff. I was like, man, that's that's really awesome because, 
what I also what I always like about uh, Bayesian inference is that it forces you to update your belief, even in a direction that you don't like if the data yeah. imply it. You know, so it's a really good way to check the the hooligan who is hidden inside all of us. You know. And this hooligan is really present, especially when you're talking about politics. So I was like, wow, that's that's really cool. We should have that in Europe. And so I was like, yeah, yeah, let's, let's try to do that. And I did that with, uh, with two of my friends. Um, we basically tried to to do a, a project very inspired by 538 in, in France that's called uh, Pulse Position. And um, yeah, that, that's um, that's not always uh, very easy <laughs> because uh, uh, people tend to, you know, focus on the last poll and they just um, they they don't check if uh, well, you know, you often hear, oh, there is this new poll, and I don't know, um, Le Pen is like the the election's new favorite, but right, right, right. Then people would just forget about that, and they don't check if the next poll denied the status of uh, of the new favorite candidate. You know, and yeah, we'd always hear like, "Oh, a new poll says you yeah. know so and so is ahead," and then yeah. you, you realize there are like ten polls taken that day, and that one was kind of the wild one. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, exactly. It, it, reporters, journalists, kind of pick and choose what they focus on. Yeah, yeah, and and I like to think they're focusing on which one has the best methodology and data no. set. I don't think that's what's actually no. going on. No, no. I, at least, at least uh, that's not what I witnessed in France. And yeah, so the whole project was to help people be less emotion, emotional about that uh, and more robust to partisan manipulation. You know, more skeptical of. Um, um, people cherry picking polls and saying, "Oh, yeah, 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 that's true. This candidate is in the lead." And again, it's about getting to the truth instead of uh, being right. You know, because you feel right when the candidate you root for is elected, but uh, it's not always uh, the truth that your candidate was in the lead during the whole campaign. So the idea was, yeah, to check narratives to see where the nuances were um also to check uh, to check name recognition you know because as you said um usually people think that the most famous or the oldest uh, pollster is the best and mm. it's actually oh, oh, of the pollsters not the candidates yeah no yeah yeah no yeah. not the candidates no well, of well, the name recognition of the candidate also matters a lot yeah, particularly yeah. early on yeah yeah uh, yeah totally but um now, here I'm talking about how the polls are communicated to, to the people. And yeah, usually uh, they, the, the, you have this heuristic uh, that's really useful for snap decisions, but for complicated, multidimensional, evolving systems like elections, um, just relying on the simple name recognition heuristics for polls is uh, really not what you should do. So yeah. Basically, yeah, the, the big question of, of Paul's position is, well, let's check the narrative and let's see what's the real state of the races and what, what really seems to influence voters' decisions. All right. So I just want everyone to know that this episode is sponsored by Manning Publishing. You go to manning.com and get 
all of their books, uh, among them Deep Learning with Structured Data by Mark Ryan, who I uh, interviewed on episode 87, Deep Learning with Structured Data, will teach you how to apply powerful deep learning analysis techniques to structured data found in the relational databases that real-world businesses depend on. Also, last week, and I got a lot of great responses from last week's interview, that was with David Kopeck in episode 97, localmaxradio.com slash 97, and that was on classic uh, computer science problems in Python and also in Swift. A lot of people asking me for all those free ebooks we were giving out. But remember, if you missed that, PodLocalMax19 is the discount code at uh, manning.com, and you can go there and get 40% off all Manning books, including, uh, including deep learning with structured data and including... Uh, classic computer science problems in Python and classic computer science uh, problems in Swift. Um, and I look through these, a lot of great discussions. Also check out the last two episodes, those two episodes, 87 and 97, uh, because we, we really got into this topic to see if, see if you'd be interested. We have a lot of Manning books in our Foursquare library at work and it would make a great addition to your work library. Learn computer science, learn technical frameworks, make your job skills more marketable by go to manning.com and applying the code podlocalmax. 19 to get that discount. All right, now back to the show. Yeah, so you uh, so you started writing about elections in 2016. You said you got into Bayesian inference about three years ago, so that kind of lines up. Yeah. Was that, that was primarily what brought you into uh, Bayesian inference, trying to look at that problem? Yeah, 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 completely. I, I feel like one of the, like it's easy to judge someone, oh, they just want, you know, this outcome and therefore they're they're, forming that beliefs, but actually it's, it doesn't come naturally to us at all to just kind of say, okay, I'm just going to bring in the data, let my numbers crunch, and then, um, and then let that be it. Uh, it's, you really have to make uh, kind of an effort to do it. Hmm. Um, and in fact, you know, like you actually have, have to make an effort to set up, you know, your uh, set up Bayesian inference, like what, like what am I trying to learn and am I going to believe it <laughs> beforehand? Mm-hmm. I think just when all of us kind of, when left to our own devices, our beliefs kind of, um, it's, it's weird, right? Because our brains, as you said, use Bayesian inference, but then, you know, we just, we diverge from it a lot. We take shortcuts and we diverge from it. And the, sh- the shortcuts help us sometimes in some areas, but hurt us in others. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe that was a bit of a rant, but. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> that's, yeah, that's exactly what I meant. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. I think it's very jarring for people when pollsters get election results very wrong, or in some cases, you know, they don't necessarily get it wrong. They're just perceived to have gotten it wrong when they actually did kind of a reasonable job at mm. coming up with the probabilities. But. When you look at how polls are conducted and analyzed and explained to the public, what do you find is really going on? Yeah, um, yeah. So to answer your question quickly, and then I detail uh, that. But I think the problem, at least in France, is more in the analysis and in how polls are explained to the public, mm. and not really in how they are conducted. I mean, of course, uh, you always have uh, room for improvement and French pollsters are not perfect. But actually, we did uh, an analysis of pollsters' um, historical performance on the on the website. And that's actually one of our weights in, in our uh, polling average. And, well, French pollsters are actually pretty good. I mean, uh, they have a two-point average error for... Uh, 
for surveys of like uh, 1,000 people and uh, 40 million people electorate. So that's that's really not bad, um, especially compared to, for instance, UK pollsters. So I think the, you know, the feeling that polls are less and less reliable come come mostly from from communication and one of the one of the things i think is that in 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 france political journalism is still not very data driven i mean most journalists come from arts curricula and the courage is mainly through op-eds and big theories so i'm not saying it's not interesting it's actually intellectually stimulating because most of these journalists are very educated, very smart, and very knowledgeable. But when you do this kind of theoretical reasoning uh, and don't confront it to data, well, often you end up using logical arguments rather than factual ones, you know, and ultimately... Well, logical doesn't sound that bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it can be logical and wrong, you know, not factually true. Right, so, right. You know, it can if you just narrative based. Uh, yeah, it could be like narrative based arguments. Exactly, exactly. And so ultimately, it gives ways to it gives way to cherry picking, uh, as we said. And yeah, you just pick the poll that suits more the narrative you already believed in. And that's uh, that's one of the problem. Uh, and what I'm trying to say is. Let's come down and look at the big picture and what can we say given our data and model, given all the data and not uh, the one that uh, suits uh, our, our narrative. And especially one of my big points always is where are the uncertainties? You know, what would mm. be surprising? What are the odds of each scenario? So... Yeah, that's... Can, can you give an example where, like, you know, there'd be one area where you're not as concerned about uncertainty, and in another area where you are? Um, do you mean in elections? Sure, sure. Yeah, like, can you just give me an example of where maybe uh, an uncertainty that you've um, uh, come across? That yeah. either you've been worried about, or maybe that it came yeah, to yeah. fruition that they haven't been um, discussing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, for instance. Um... Thanks to the pollster ratings that we did, we noticed that um, during, I think, during the five last elections, French pollsters tended... These would be the, the French presidential elections or no, the... Uh... all elections. I mean... Uh, all elections, yeah, okay. Like uh, at all levels, regional, uh, presidential, uh, parliament, and so on. And during, gotcha. Cool. During you the, have to explain to us a little bit about the. Uh, I know a little bit about the electoral system there, but uh, you might have to fill us in on some of the details. Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, please ask me when uh, when something is not clear. But uh, yeah, we we looked at all the types of election, and I think uh, during the five last elections, pollsters tended to overestimate the far right party. Hmm. While against how they did. Uh, Ultimately. Yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, compared to the result, they tended to overestimate the far-right party. And what's interesting is that the conventional wisdom, I mean, at every election was that, oh, yeah, the big uncertainty is that pollsters uh, are going to underestimate the far-right party, you know. So 
it was it was like really in most of the media was like, oh yeah, we have to be careful about the fact that uh, maybe uh, the far right uh, will be underestimated. And actually, that's one of the examples where conventional wisdom, when it takes into account uncertainties, it takes into account uncertainties that goes into their already uh, their already made narrative, you know. I mean, right? Because so, let me just take a stab at trying to exp- uh, trying to explain. Like, uh, it, ha- had that vote total for the far right parties been underestimated in the past, or was that just an idea that was out there that was going to be underestimated? Yeah, exactly. That was just an idea. Uh, yeah, I mean, there there was one election, one big election in two thousand two, you know, on the first round where um, the far right party party was uh, underestimated by pollsters. And it turned out that because of that, posters didn't see that the far right party would be present at the second round, which was like okay. which was like huge at the yeah, time. Yeah, I remember that election. Yeah, it was like huge. It was a, a seismic uh, change in uh, French politics. It was the the first time in history that the the far right was present at the second round. And so you know these elections like really shook things up uh, i think in in the in the media and the political narrative but what i did was like well i i always hear that uh, pollsters uh, tend to underestimate the far right is that true or not and i looked at the data and it it's actually not true for the five last elections they tended to mm. overestimate the far right and what i mean by that is that contrary to the model when you're just uh, looking at the numbers on your own, you tend to forget that uncertainties are most of the time symmetrical. So yeah, of course, the far right could be underestimated, but they also could be overestimated. And actually, if you look in recent history, they tend to be they tend to overestimate the far right. So maybe if you think with the Bayesian perspective, you should put a higher prior on the fact that the far right will, will be overestimated than underestimated. Right. Uh, yeah. And the model could probably account for either possibility. Exactly. And that's exactly what the model did for the, the election last year. There were uh, actually this year in May, uh, there were elections uh, at the European level. But, sure. but these elections uh, take place in all European countries independently and then votes are counted and and aggregated at the european uh, scale and actually yeah the the, the model saw that um, there were a big uh, possibility that the far right party could be overestimated and it was overestimated again so that's typically the kind of situation where having a principled way to look at the data and to make sense of new data arriving, to incorporate all these new data in what you should think about the state of the race. That's a perfect example of why it's difficult to do that just by hand. Yeah, yeah. We live, uh, we're in interesting times now in kind of world. If you look at like 
all of the um, elections going on around the world, I maybe maybe this is just my impression, but I feel this way, is that um, while you had stable party politics before, now across Europe, uh, you, you just see a lot of these smaller parties making uh, making a lot of headway mm. on both sides of the political aisle. Mm. That it seems like things that there are. Um, I'm not really sure, but there are a lot of uncertainties that need to be accounted for. I don't know if there's a way to kind of um, predict, you know, how well, uh, how, how, you know, what kind of move room to move different parties have. I mean, I remember when, um, you know, Donald Trump was running and he was at, I don't know, uh, he was at a certain point in the primary, like maybe he was at 20 percent. And, you know, someone I think it was Karl Rove who was. Um, George Bush's head of um, George Bush's pollster, you know, his his campaign manager, he said, well, sure, he has 20 percent of the people who really like him, but the other 80 percent will never vote for him or mm. something like that. Mm. Uh, that turned out to be wrong. <laughs> and, and so it, the question is, like, it, I, I don't know if there's a good way of, like, trying to figure out how how like trying to figure out how dynamic the electorate is right now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's. That's when I, mean, I mean, I feel like we're just going to learn a lot over the next 10 years about how to yeah. solve these problems. Yeah, exactly. That's that's really, that's both very difficult and very interesting. Um, I mean, right now in France, for instance, uh, yeah, you, you've you got like the two traditional parties. Uh, they didn't even, they weren't even in the uh, presidential election in the second round, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah, yeah. That, that would be like, imagine if, if in, in the US, yeah. if... Like the two candidates running were the the Democrats were not really in it and the Republicans were not really in it. It was basically just two third party candidates running against each other. That would just be insane. Oh yeah, 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 exactly. So, I mean, in 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 France right now, it's uh, it's kind of like that, and you've got the basically the two traditional parties that kind of disappear for for the moment, and so you have. Uh, two two big parties, uh, which are uh, Mac- Macron's parties, which is uh, basically at the center center right of the spectrum, and then you've got uh, Le Pen's party, which is uh, on the far right. Uh, these are the two main parties right now, and you also have um, a recomposition on the left of the spectrum, which is. Um, undergoing a lot of of changes so it's it's really it's really kind of uh messy right now and for instance i'm i'm working right now on on a model to try to predict um the results of uh paris uh paris uh, city council elections next year and okay. i'm trying to year out that's uh, yeah yeah that's that's really hard in part because well first I'm trying to do that at the district level so Paris is uh, divided into 20 districts which are called uh, arrondissement and so I'm trying to predict the election at that level and also one of the big things is that uh, six years ago uh, which were the last city council election in Paris uh, there were no centrist party so, but this year there will be a centrist party, and it, and it is Macron's party. So it's a big party. So yeah, it means like when your model is looking at historical patterns, uh, it's really difficult to tell him that you know. Well, 
yeah, last last time there were no parties at the center of the spectrum, but no, there is one. And oh, by the way, it's the party of the president, so you can't really ignore it. It's not. It's, sure. It's not uh, something you can just brush off, you know. So yeah, I'm working on that right now, and it's 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 very difficult, but it's really interesting. Yeah. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, you know how you model these elections and electoral prospects. What methods have you had success with? And um, can you tell us a little bit about the hierarchical modeling? Oh, yeah, my pleasure. <laughs> so, yeah, as you as you said earlier... Um, I love hierarchical models, but I don't, it's, it's going to be tough with the audio uh, format, but let's, we'll do our best. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's the challenge accepted. <laughs> uh, yeah, as you said earlier, um, I think Bayesian inference is a really natural framework here for election because uh, uncertainty estimation is one of its core pillars and as I said I think it's a it's one of the cases where you really care about uncertainty so yeah. I, I also think if I can add another uh, a reason yeah. you also get data from a lot of different sources a lot of different types of data that you have to include in a model mm, yeah. and like a Bayesian method is is better when you want to think about okay I have data uh, this kind of data, maybe this kind of data is a poll, and this other kind of data, which is maybe a poll on maybe like the like economic data or something, how yeah. the economy is doing, yeah. and like how do I combine these? So Bayesian framework is a lot better to figure out ways to combine them than the you know traditional frequentist uh, methods. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a framework where you can incorporate measurement error, for instance. So it's really yeah. quite easily actually. Uh, I mean, it's. Uh, yeah, it's amazing how easy conceptually and in coding, how easy is that is to incorporate measurement error. Uh, actually, the main problem is how do you fit your model then? But uh, conceptually, it's very easy to incorporate it. And as you said, measurement error is really important when you have polling data uh, mixed with other data. So basically what I did for the European elections is that I had a polling average where I had several weights. Uh, mm, the main weights were the, the date on, well, I just, when, when, whenever a new poll arrived, the, the program would say, well, when was the poll conducted? The more recent, the better. Um, how many people were interviewed? the more people, the better. And where does the polls, where does the, where, where does the poll come from? I mean, which pollsters uh, conducted the poll? It's um, basically what you do when you read an article, you know, you look at the source. So the, 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 the program would do the same thing. Uh, he he would look at the source. Uh, it was that poll done by Ipsos or another pollster, and then he would match the the poll with the corresponding uh, pollster ratings that uh, we had in our database, which is a historical database of uh, pollsters' performance. And then he would average all of the polls and give that to the model which is, uh, as you said, a hierarchical model or multi-level model. Uh, it's the same thing. Uh, 
Right. It's like, so you might be looking at the uncertainty of any one given poll, but then also a level up looking at, see if there are any uncertainties like overall. Yeah. Yeah. Basically that's, that's it. I was across the board. Yeah. I was telling the model, my goal was to tell the model, well, you're going to observe polls and then I want you to try and estimate the latent support, uh, in the population for each party. But be careful because polls are not a perfect observations. They are noisy observation. So you have actually a what we call a, a hidden state. You know, you have a latent uh, proportion, uh, latent support of the population that supports each party, but you never observe it uh, really neatly even even elections are not that uh clean uh observation sure. you know because you have some people that don't vote etc and so i was telling the model don't forget to take into account these historical errors you know of the polls so yeah that's why you use uh several layers uh, of uh, in your model and actually if you want i'm just gonna try to sum up the, the idea and why hierarchical models are amazing. <laughs> yeah, let's go for it. Uh, so basically, they pull information across clusters. Your cluster can be an individual or um, some dating time or some district. So for instance, for Paris City Council election, I would say that each district is a cluster. So the hierarchical model is going to pull information across all clusters and that is going to inform the parameters in each cluster so basically what right. you so it's 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 balancing it's a balancing act between what yeah. can we learn about the clusters as a, as a whole what can we generalize and what uh, what peculiarities are specific yeah. to an individual cluster that we shouldn't generalize. And if you just think about it, like when you're just learning something, you know, that's that's kind of hard to figure out which one to, like, let's say I get a, a crazy poll in, in one district. Do I say the poll is wrong? Do I say, okay, that district must be going in a, in a wild direction? Or do I say, hey, maybe everyone is going in that wild direction? And it's not obvious what to say just from, from, from one piece of data, but I think that hierarchical model does a very good job of balancing all of those possibilities. Yeah, exactly. And it's all the more difficult uh, in France, for instance, because you have several parties competing. It's not like in the yeah. US where you just have two parties. In France, you usually have at least six parties competing with each other. And so you have uh, basically a huge matrix <laughs> of a six-dimensional matrix. So it's, <laughs> it's you can do that by yeah. hand. And so, yeah, the, the idea of the multi-level model is that you try to balance underfitting and overfitting at the same time. So, and it, it, it achieves that, uh, that because the estimates are of each district are shrunk towards the mean of the population. So, for instance, the mean for all the city, for the whole city, for Paris, and in re in return, the mean of the population itself is influenced by clusters that have a big sample size. You know, so yeah. districts that have a bigger population 
will have more weight in the population overall, and then they will inform the parameters in other districts. Hmm. Yeah, okay. So um, one aspect that I know you've spoken about of the electoral system, of, of different electoral systems, is the idea of strategic voting. Um, I covered some of this uh, previously on the show in episode 48 with Daniel Kronovet. We talked about social choice theory. Hmm. Um, episode 72, we talked a little bit about uh, Shapley values, which is um, well, if you're interested, uh, <laughs> I would direct uh, listeners to episode 72 uh, to talk about that, but that's a measure of how much power an individual voter has in any given system. Uh, in fact, you know, there's debate within the U.S. on whether we should change our yeah. electoral system in, hmm. in variety of ways. And so what have you learned about how the different rules of the game affect the strategies of the candidates and the voters, or even like how many, you know, how many parties compete? Yeah. Yeah. Uh... Yeah, first, I, I like your question because uh, I think my answer will be more digest than the hierarchical model answer for your <laughs> listeners. So it's good to balance uh, balance all that. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that's an interesting question. Uh, I caveat uh, with the fact that uh, I'm not an expert on that subject, but I'm, I'm interested uh, in it, of course, <laughs> because when you study election, you also study the the strategies uh, and the game, the rules of yeah. the game. Well, I'd imagine like in, in in the US, like we have districts where it's whoever gets the most votes wins. Yeah. And so you have to, it, it's, it's tough to not have, uh, there are cases where there are multiple parties that, that compete, mm -hmm. but in most cases, there are two parties that compete and uh, essentially they'll kind of move with relation to each other. But you know, if one of those are going to win, then there's very little incentive to vote for a third party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in France, it's um, it's actually quite different um, because, well, first in France and in the US, uh, from the academic research I read, uh, different rules do affect strategies of voters and candidates. You know, so if you change the rules, um, it will change the way voters and candidates will behave, but. What you can see in France, for instance, well, first, the most common voting systems, voting system in France is a two-round election. So yeah. everybody competes in the first round and only the two uh, major candidates go on to the second round. And yeah. each time it's the, it's the majority that decide. And I think it's uh, more and more clear in the, in the literature that in this context, uh, the majority rule is um, can actually not uh, be optimal. You know, it can be a, a suboptimal way to aggregate preferences, mostly because voters tend to vote for their candidate of choice instead of the one who has the most chance at winning. In so, the first round. In the first round, yeah. Yeah. So, in other words, you know, they vote, uh, I would say, sentimentally and not strategically. And then the, the problem, and, and you can all argue that it's actually a good thing, you know, in a democracy, you want people to really express their preferences, their absolute yeah. preferences in that, instead of their relative preferences. And so, actually, the problem here seems to arise from the, these two-round or one-round even election, like in France or in the UK. And these elections are very sensitive to 
what researchers uh, call in a very non-sexy way non-relevant alternatives. It's it's basically it basically non-relevant alternatives. Yeah, basically it okay. means it means that candidates that don't have a shot at winning, but are close ideologically to one who does. Um, sorry, let me rephrase: candidates that don't have a shot at winning, but are close ideologically to uh, a candidate who does have a chance. Well, these candidates, they actually can provoke the defeat of the candidate preferred by the majority because they cause a dispersion of the votes. You see? Yeah. So basically, for instance, uh, in France, imagine you have a left, right, and a Green Party candidate. Green Party candidates tend to be very close to the left party in France. If the Green Party candidate stays in the second round, and it can happen, I, I'm not going to go in the details, but you can have three candidates like that in the second round. If these... If these... Okay, so this, so it's a little bit more complicated than... Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Okay. But if, if the green candidate stays and the, the left candidate, for instance, if the choice of the majority, if this candidate would win without the green candidate, well, with the green candidate, it will disperse votes that would have gone to the left candidate otherwise and then cause the candidate of the right to win whereas this candidate from the right is not the preferred candidate of the whole majority you see the yeah. paradox you see? sure sure so it's it's I, i'm not inventing that it's uh, the marquis de condorcet like in uh, i think it's uh, 18th century that uh, formalized mathematically this paradox and Right, the Condorcet paradox. Condorcet paradox, exactly. Uh, basically, that the majority candidate can lose the election because her voters are div divided, leading to the victory of a candidate who only has a relative majority. So yeah. it means that in the runoff system, adding, adding a candidate can change the result of the election. So it opens the door to what you should have uh, hear, uh, heard from now is the dilemma of the useful voting, you know, or stuff like that. It means that people can't really express their absolute preferences and yeah. they, they have to express their relative preferences. It's yeah, it's th this reminds me of one story that's going on in the US right now, which is, um, I think there's a lot more going on than just the, the voting paradox, but, uh, 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 Michael Bloomberg, who was the mayor here in New York and, you know, a, ten, a billionaire, like tens of billions, yeah. he got into the race for the Democratic primary. Yeah. And a lot of people say, well, it's very unlikely that he'll get a majority on that, but he'll spend a lot of money. And so there's this um, speculation that he's trying to make the, uh, you know, he, he's trying to get the um, the results to go a, a particular way. Um, it could just be rather than strategic voting, like trying to get his issues out there or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but, um, you know, there's a lot of speculation on how this will affect the other candidates. And there's no, I've seen articles go both ways. I've seen, well, maybe this will help Joe Biden because then it will, because he has the most name recognition hmm. and the other candidates have less re name recognition. And now with Bloomberg in there, it's going to be hard for them to, to bubble up or maybe, because you know Bloomberg's going to be a little bit more pro business, then he'll sort of split the vote with Biden, and it will help those candidates. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Whether that happens, <laughs> what actually happens remains to be seen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 
I think in in the US it's it's a little more complicated than in Europe because you have the electoral college and the the winner take all rule. So. Yeah, so that's that has some very interesting results, and I do want to have you know more people on the show yeah. to talk about the electoral college. Yeah, yeah, um, that's, that's and, very uh, interesting. Yeah, yeah, it it, it is. I it's it's um, the way it works now is not really what our founders intended. Although there are some really interesting uh, interesting outcomes of that that um, that are not necessarily negative. I know that a lot of people yeah, uh, yeah. there are a lot of people who say, "Oh yeah, let's definitely get rid mm -hmm. of it." But um, I think <laughs> if you just get rid of it in favor of a hey, uh, you know, whoever gets the most votes and that won't be someone who gets a majority uh, wins, then you can have a, a lot of you could have a lot of more Condorcet paradox. Yeah, well. yeah, oh yeah, exactly. I I, I would say uh, if you do that and if you're gonna redo a voting system from scratch, uh, don't go with the one round or two round system. I mean, go with the uh, with other systems. I mean, there there are. All, um, very interesting alternatives. Uh, yeah, I think I. Well, I would. I, I would like to see states, um, you know, within the states, uh, yeah. do a lot more, um, and, and they are doing some uh, yeah, yeah. You know, innovation with their electoral mm -hmm. system because they can. You know, the electoral college is in our constitution. Yeah, but states can basically do whatever they want. Um, and I don't know if you know this, but uh, California and Louisiana have. Mm -hmm. um, uh, a system kind of similar to in France, which is two rounds. I think it's called the jungle primary. Mm -hmm. where everybody runs the first round, and then the second round, um, you know, it's it's between two people. Sometimes that has weird results. Like in Louisiana in 1991, we had uh, uh, one guy who was openly corrupt, and then he handily defeated another guy who was from the Ku Klux Klan. So it was it was like, <laughs> and then they did it by um, you know. Basically, having a lot of irrelevant candidates run, yeah, um, yeah, and exactly. Split, split votes, yeah. So that's why I'd say uh, if you if you have to choose a new system, try to choose a the system that is the more robust to non-relevant alternatives, because that way you can have candidates that you can have as many candidates as you want, and that's a good thing, you know. Like people who wanna defend their ideas, well, they can uh, go and run, and they won't hurt the election and also um, voters they can express uh, their true preferences and they can even reject or be indifferent and express that fact you know so you have i i, I have two main the two preferred uh, options favorite options i'd say that i saw in the literature that's uh, first the ranked choice voting and another one that's called the randomized Condorcet voting. And the first one is, as the name says, uh, you just rank the candidates, you know, but not not with grades, yeah. with words. We're, we're going to start doing this in, in New York next year. They only implemented it in a very timid fashion where you could only do it in the primary. So yeah. if you're a, a Democrat, you can pick among the Democratic mm. candidates in your district. And if you're a Republican, you pick among the Republican candidates. And then once those candidates are chosen, election is going to just happen as they are. But it'll be interesting to see see people get used to actually um, doing a ranking list. Yeah. And mm -hmm. it, it gives you uh, a lot more, and, and me is, is like kind of following along, a lot more interesting things to think about when it comes to the modeling as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's uh, it's, that's the, an, an all other uh, story. But I think yeah. it's, it's really, I'm really excited about this, uh, these uh, 
experimentations that you're doing in the US. And actually, do you know in, in New York how it's going to be implemented? Are you going to rank the candidates by grade or by, you know, appreciation? Like excellent, no, it, very good? No, 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 no. It's it's just going to be a, a ranked list and it's just going to be for city-wide offices and only for the primary. So the final, yeah, yeah. Um, the final election is just going to be whoever gets, it's just going to be plurality. Oh, okay. So that means that you're going to rank the different candidates by order of preference. Yeah, but oh, only okay. only to figure out who becomes the Democratic nominee and who becomes the Republican nominee. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And in New York City, uh, the Democratic nominee always wins. So yeah. <laughs> it's really, that's the election. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, yeah. Oh, okay. But that's interesting. That's actually the Condorcet voting method that yeah. I talked oh, about. Oh, no, but it's going to be more ranked. It's. Um, I would prefer that it be like the, the Condorcet winner yeah. um, gets it's, it, it's but awesome. it's going to be more like they're just going to count up the first uh, the, the the first oh the one that's uh, rising first ah yeah okay yeah they're, they're going to count up people's first place votes and yeah. then the okay. the last place whoever comes in last place is is gone off and then whoever and then all those voters they're they're everything gets shifted up one so they're oh, second yeah. place okay well that's interesting but uh, that's true yeah. it doesn't have all the nice mathematical properties that uh, rank choice voting and rank yeah yeah I, I like I, I said in the last one they moved from the worst system to the second worst yeah exactly right. yeah, we yeah. we're making progress but I I am interested in see okay get voters used to the idea of ranking candidates like is that possible there are some people who say oh you know nobody wants to go in there and actually rank people uh, but but let's see we'll we'll actually have some real yeah yeah real we'll see. It's, data and see if that works yeah yeah the, the, I, I'd say the it's true that a new voting system should be easy to understand you know uh, that. I mean, uh, ranked choice voting and randomized Condorcet, it's the good thing that it's really easy to understand. Plus, uh, Can you give me like a brief, I, I'm familiar with the idea of a Condorcet winner where like, okay, yeah. everyone ranks and then the candidate who would beat every other candidate in a yeah. head-to-head wins. But what's a randomized Condorcet? Oh, randomized is just to, because as you said, uh, uh, the Condorcet voting uh, is uh, head-to-heads. Uh, well, you 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 rank in order of preference, and then you do head to heads, and the one who wins most uh, the most head to heads uh, wins. But sometimes you don't have a Condorcet winner, so the right. that's where the randomized part comes comes in. Oh, okay. Uh, because the randomized uh, is basically very complicated math to determine who is the winner when there is no unique Condorcet winner, and to simplify things, it's uh, basically a lottery where the probabilities of each candidate to win the lottery are weighted by each candidate's strength in the head-to-head confrontations. Okay, okay, I see. I just I, I need a whole show to yeah describe yeah. that. Yeah, right, yeah, but I'll, yeah. I'll definitely looking at that more. Yeah, honestly, that's uh, that's uh, a very elegant uh, way to solve the Condorcet uh, paradox uh, when there is no winner. And well, this but the ranked choice uh, voting is interesting also. And these these two methods have the nice property of uh, well having no useful voting dilemma for voters. You can it means you can vote for whoever you want, and it won't bias yeah. the results. And that means that then the 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 candidates will change. You know, there's exactly. certain people, certain third parties or independents will make a go out of it. Yeah. You will have more choice. You will have more choice. And you can also express 
uh, if you reject all the candidates, you can say that, and you can also express your indifference towards the candidates. And also you can see at the end with the results, you can see how comfortable uh, the election was won. You know, so you can yeah. see if the winner was uh, had a very good election or if he was elected by a very thin margin. So it gives you yeah, also yeah. this degree of of and, and whether it's actually true that um, yeah oh like these like in your example like will the Green Party candidates prefer the left side like is that actually true we, we'd know or and yeah, to what extent exactly. yeah plus yeah. Uh, plus you can it's actually uh, uh, one of the one of the things that you can see uh, in how the electoral college is implemented right now in the US. I mean, you can see how many electoral voters uh, the, the president got. And it means that the more or less you have means that you were elected more or less comfortably. It's not exactly the same thing, but it's uh, it's kind of a proxy. Uh, yeah, it's convertible in that like, um, yeah, I mean, the electoral college kind of represents, you know, how much, how much geographical... Yeah. Um, you know, whether your support is geographically diverse, which yeah. is, which yeah, is yeah. an interesting thing. Exactly. Um, okay, so I'm going to end on this question. This is a tough question. might not be a good answer for it. Um, <laughs> but I want to, you know, as I said before, we, I feel like we live in a time of great social and technological change. And I always try to, you know, predict trends. And uh, five years ago, I was trying to, you know, get into technological forecasting because mm. I wanted to know, you know, what I should be working on, what I should be looking into, what I should be investing in. And I said, okay, I'm not going to try to predict social trends and, and electoral trends because it's impossible. Now it's 2020, it's five years later. And I'm like, okay, uh, we got to at least try <laughs> because uh, uh, some of these are a really big part of the picture. Um, but you know, and, and this is also a huge part of the picture when you're trying to predict elections. Do you try? Do you think it's possible to predict changes, in, widespread changes in beliefs and social attitudes, or do you think um, I was right in, originally to just say no? Just just use a uniform prior and uh, and forget about it. <laughs> God, I hope not. <laughs> but uh, no, it's, it's seriously, of course. Uh, here, I'm I'm of course biased. Um, but it's actually a question or even a critique I, I often get. Now, to be clear, I, I don't think all social attitudes are predictable, but I don't think none are either. You know, I think it depends on the topic. Um, I think I'd say my prior is around uh, 75% of, uh, of topic that you can predict when it comes to, to social attitudes. But... In general, I think this, uh, this idea that you can't predict uh, social and political attitudes uh, often rely on one of two assumptions, I'd say. The first one is that um, statistical forecasting is uh, like horse race punditry. Well, mm. I'd argue that it's kind of the opposite. Because uh, as I said, what I like in Bayesian forecasting is that you have to display your priors and then Bayes' rule tells you how to update your beliefs, even if you don't like the implication. And so it's clear, it's open, and you can run the model with different priors to see how this changes the analysis. While uh, often in Penditry, you'll see that um, the analysis, uh, it's not very clear how it's done. You don't really know the assumption, the counterfactuals, the uncertainties. And often I think you'll notice that most pundits don't make very precise predictions. 
You know, it's no, it's, it's very broad. Based on like what they want to happen. Yeah, yeah. Is... Plus, it tends to be like you know broad and evocative, kind of like sure. a fortune teller. <laughs> so, uh, whereas in statistical forecasting, you have to make precise predictions, and then right. you check your predictions against the results. So you get feedback, and that's how you improve. Uh, when you do broad and vague predictions, well, you never fail, but I'd say you never learn. So right. that's the first thing. And I think the second assumption of the impossibility of social forecasting is, I think, the fact that we as the species, you know, like Homo sapiens, are so unpredictable that we are so unique and evolved that you can't forecast what we'll do. And it seems it seems a little presumptuous to me <laughs> because it's not like we're living in a chaotic society. Um, if anything, I, historically, I think we strive for order to perpetuate the species. You know, we have system, systemic uh, cognitive biases and they are called systemic precisely because they are predictable. We, we use them over and over again when, when in a given situation. Um, and even on the election side, uh, you know, uh, we, we vote quite predictably, uh, actually, according to how we were raised, how we were mm. educated, where we live. And these socio-demographic variables, they take a long time to change where, when they do, you know. So, yeah. I mean, it's, it's not like the, like the stock exchange. You know, you can you can foresee the big big changes in social yeah. demographic trends, and I think even you know you probably can't tell me like you know okay what is going to be the biggest issue in the U.S. in the year twenty thirty that that's too much to ask, but um, I think you know there are certain trends that um, you can pick up on, particularly if a lot of these pundits are just going based off of you know their hopes and dreams mm. and not what's mm. really going on if you could actually find something in the data you could actually say something that um you could you could make some real predictions that other people aren't making yeah yeah and i mean so it's just i think that most of the time our social life and political attitudes are are not uh, that chaotic you know in fact mm. we it seems that we change our mind quite rarely and because well, to... I, you see individuals online who change their mind, like like pundits and stuff, who are all of a sudden different. I mean, maybe they're just following the money. I don't know, <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, yeah. But, or I, mean, I, yeah. I mean, in the in the broad, uh, in the broad numbers, uh, of course, you can find individuals that change the mind. But look at the U.S. right now and how partisan. Uh, the, yeah. the, the the politics uh, here. I, have, I've has noticed it's, it's gotten like steadily worse and worse throughout my life, and I wonder if there is a time when the trend reverses itself because yeah, it, uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, yeah. I, I mean, today we have one. You know, we have a, a, a president being impeached with one side saying, you know, this is so. This is just ridiculous. They just hate the president. The other side is saying, I think someone was quoted saying, this is the most impeachable thing that I've ever seen. Yeah. And it's just exactly. like, how could you have such two completely different narratives? I don't know. I mm. I guess it could get worse, but uh, yeah, yeah, of course, <laughs> we'll but see what happens. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, 
I mean, education and this and, isn't even this isn't even an important issue to people now. It's like uh, this is only like the the fifth biggest thing that's happened this week in news. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but uh, yeah, I mean, uh, if you if you look at uh, education and and geography, you 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 already can have a, a good idea of of how people will vote in in the U.S. Hmm. And actually, uh, there is I, I I think I can leave you with that reference. Uh, there is a really nice paper from Andrew Gelman and uh, one of his uh, co-author. Of course, I forgot the, the name of the co-author. I'm sorry, but... All right, uh, well, we'll link to it. I'll mention it after yeah, the show. Yeah, I'll link to it. Uh, I, I'll give you the link, but uh, it's a paper from uh, 2014. And they look at, they do a cohort analysis on, uh, on voters uh, since the 40s. And they actually show, and it's very nice uh, because it's a Bayesian uh, analysis. It's a Bayesian paper. Yeah. Uh, Andrew well, Gelman. Yeah, yeah, Andrew Gelman is like the one of the big stars of the field. And uh, they see that the, the political events of uh, voters' teenage and early adult years, uh, which is around uh, 18, you know, when you're 18, well, yeah. these events uh, are enormously important in the formation of your long-term partisan preferences. Interesting. You know? Yeah, I guess you could say that's that's um that's that's very true. Yeah. So, but it's it's also kind of depressing, you know, because it means that well, basically most people won't change their political views. When Although I I feel like that's the age people are either forming their political views or maybe um under like Maybe they had similar views before, but they were sort of not really um, interested as much. I'm just, you know, I'm speaking of personal experience and people I know, but um, it doesn't. I don't know if it, I don't know if the if we could just assume that people aren't if that's like the the critical age. But I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, no, I I mean I I don't have a a clear answer on that, except that yeah, if I reading this paper, I was like. It makes sense that uh, you're the most um, um, impressionable. I don't know if impressionable is the word in English, but uh, yeah, um, yeah, no, it's it's that's the it, that's the age to get them at. In other words, you yeah, convince I, people I, at that age, you convince them at. Yeah, at, exactly. Uh, it's life. like you're a like a sponge, you know, at eighteen, yeah. and so you mm. you have a lot of you you learn a lot of things, and you're really receptive to all the different signals you receive from right. the outside world. So, and it makes sense that it's at that stage that uh, your most formative uh, views uh, come into being. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. But of course, uh, I, I won't say I'm 100% sure, sure it's true. Yeah. I mean, it's just... Well, just, uh, just convert everyone to being a good Bayesian and then they'll be open to changing their mind. Exactly. <laughs> That's the idea. <laughs> All right, great, uh, the, and and so uh, yes, I would support um, teaching uh, Bayesian inference in high school. Then, oh yeah, uh, me too, me too. But <laughs> okay, keeping in mind, of course, that it's not a magical tool; it's just a tool to sure. to help you get to the truth. And and sometimes it won't be the best tool to use, but uh, often it's a it's a useful tool, uh, and it's good to have that in your toolbox. But just. Don't be a, a hooligan Bayesian. It's it's also hard also <laughs> to to have that in mind. I mean, I love Bayesian statistics, but I also try to 
not be a hooligan of that and and stay open to the to the critics and and the problems that are associated uh, with with these methods. No, I agree. I'll, I'll, I'll I'm going to cover some of those issues on on my podcast, and I'm sure you're going to cover some of those issues on yours. So yeah. I look forward to collaborating in the future, Alex. We're just about out of time. Thanks for coming on the show. Uh, um, tell people where they can check out the podcast and uh, your other. Um, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, the podcast uh, people can check it out at uh, learnbasestats.envol.app. That's uh, a n v i l dot a p p. And well, you can also it'll all be on the show notes page, localmaxradio.com slash ninety eight. Yeah, thanks, thanks for that. And of course, yeah, people can reach out to me. uh, I'm quite uh, present on Twitter, and I'm at uh, Alex underscore Endora, like the country. And I always like um, people that reach out, who reach out to me to give me some feedback and some topics, uh, topic ideas. So please uh, feel free to reach out. All right, awesome, Alex. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thank thank you for uh, inviting me. It was a, a great pleasure talking to you. I always love uh, getting into the nerd stuff about politics and, and base. All right. Next week is the last episode of the year, the last episode of the decade, episode 99. So I think I'm going to just go over some of your feedback and also kind of take a look back at what I think are the biggest uh, tech stories of the decade. Uh, So that'll be a lot of fun. Maybe I'll get Aaron to join me. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. Remember to check out the website at localmaxradio.com. If you want to contact me, the host, or ask a question that I can answer on the show, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. The show is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and more. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe to The Local Maximum on one of these platforms and to follow my Twitter account, at Max Sklar. Have a great week. Feel, feel the power.